coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group. This is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to the DNS Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Travis Masterson, here to talk with us about leveraging virtual reality to improve nutrition education and future applications in nutrition support. Dr. Masterson is the director of the Health, Ingestive Behavior, and Technology Laboratory and the Broadhurst Career Development Professor for the Study of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention at the Pennsylvania State University. He earned his Bachelor of Science degree in Exercise and Wellness at Brigham Young University, followed by a Master of Science degree in Health Promotion, also at Brigham Young University, and a doctoral degree in Nutritional Sciences at Pennsylvania State University, where he also served as a USDA Childhood Obesity Prevention Fellow. Dr. Masterson is the recipient of numerous fellowships and grants, and his research focuses primarily on food cue reactivity and how our food environment shapes our food choices and eating behaviors. He uses a variety of novel technologies and methodologies to accomplish this goal, including functional MRI, immersive virtual reality, also known as VR, and ecological momentary assessment, or EMA, a method of research which studies people's thoughts and behaviors in their daily lives. Dr. Masterson, thank you so much for joining us today on the DNS podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So tell us more about your role at Penn State. Yeah, so I'm I'm an assistant professor at Penn State in the Nutritional Sciences Department, um, and I'm the director of the Health Ingestive Behavior and Technology Laboratory. Um, so, so that's kind of my lab and, and what I run there. And what projects do you currently have in the works? Oh, man, we have a lot. <laughs> so... Um, Basically, my my lab, um, we look at what is known as food cues. So anything that would cue eating behavior, essentially, right? So anything that causes you to seek out and and eat. So uh, one of the most potent food cues in the environment is food marketing. So we look at that quite a bit, um, particularly in digital media. So like social media, uh, gaming, those types of things. So we've been working on a report, for example, with the WHO around digital uh, food marketing. Um, and so we have always a bunch of projects going on in that in that realm. And then uh, alongside that, we, we do some work um, uh, looking at education. Uh, so using food cues for education um, and, and improving the diet rather than, you know, food marketing, which is really pushing a lot of junk food. So we try and look at some of the techniques that are being used in that type of marketing and, and helping to push people towards healthier behavior. So we've developed some videos, for example, um, that just teach about cooking um, with herbs and spices. Um, so the projects were funded uh, by the McCormick Science Institute. And those videos are up on like the USDA's website right now. And so we do some research around those and how to best communicate um, that type of information to the public. But the, uh, the other big thing that we do is immersive virtual reality um, to examine eating behavior. 
And so, uh, and, and cute eating behavior. And so we have a variety of um, immersive virtual tools that we use to both understand eating behavior better and try and influence it. So for example, we have a virtual reality buffet and in that buffet, you can go through and and basically just make your meal like you would at a real buffet. Uh, but the whole time we're essentially tracking everything that you're doing. So what foods you're going to, how long you're looking at them, um, what you're comparing, how much you get of each food. Um, and we get that all automatically. We also have uh, a digital dietitian um, and our digital dietitian essentially teaches about portion size and energy density of foods. Um, so how to do that, how to estimate portions appropriately, um, those types of things. And then we also have some different programs that um, teach like uh, nutritional biochemistry. <laughs> so the complete opposite. And, but yeah, so we're really interested in using um, technology uh, in unique ways to help uh understand eating behavior, help influence eating behavior, help uh, support dietitians um, in in what they're trying to accomplish um, in their careers as well. So, What is the process for obtaining and then managing grant funding? Because I know I'm assuming that you've got a lot of grants to support all of this great work. That well, you're doing. <laughs> it's not yeah. free, right? <laughs> no. Um, yeah. And so fortunately, Penn State is a very, uh, what, what's a good word, like target rich environment, I guess is what we say sometimes. There's, uh, there's lots of um, money invested in research at Penn State, and there's lots of collaborative, um, collaborative uh, endeavors going on, right? And so some of our projects are funded um, internally through funding. So, for example, like our, our nutritional biochemistry project is um, funded off just a small grant from the, the college and, a, and supplemented a little bit by our department because we're interested in improving nutrition education. Right. And so, um, you know, that kind of a grant process is a little bit easier because it's uh, just talking um, to those people and submitting small applications. Then there's also uh, research institutes at Penn State that we can use to uh, help us get pilot funding for some of these projects. So the Social Science Research Institute at Penn State has funded several of our projects. And those are a little bit more in-depth kind of grant procedures, right? So we we have to put together some, <laughs> some fairly lengthy documents, and they're reviewed by a panel of scientists at, at Penn State. Um, and it's supposed to be a formative process, meaning like what they give you quite a bit of feedback <laughs> on how to improve and, and tweak your projects um, to make them competitive. And then the, with the ultimate goal of like going out and submitting for NIH funding. Right. And so that's kind of like the, the holy grail in in science and research is trying to get like a larger NIH or NSF type grant. Um, but then, like I said, we've had some work funded by the McCormick Science Institute as well. And that's a little bit of a different process than like um, than applying for NIH. There's still applications that go into that, um, but it's a lot more back and forth um, in terms of like you're trying to identify projects that are meaningful um, to um, not just the, the funder, um, but but generally to the public as well, like what what's impactful, um, what what's going to um, both move the science as well as um, 
the the health of of the consumer or the the general population. So I want to circle back to the, you mentioned the virtual reality environment research, which I think is super interesting. And honestly, that's yeah. what, that's what really drew me to talk with you on this <laughs> podcast, because I think it's just a really cool um, approach to how to doing research and kind of moving forward. So yeah. what are some of the benefits of doing research in a virtual reality environment versus just using subjects in real life? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. <laughs> and it's actually, so this is something that we think about a lot uh, when we, when we're designing these different virtual experiences, right? Um, because if you can just do it in real life, just do it in real life, right? So one of the first things that always comes up um, when we start explaining some of our work is people go, oh, well, could you just make it like real life? <laughs> go, well, like, what's the point of that? Um so people are like, oh, can you make the food, like, could you make plates that start to weigh more as you put more food on them or whatever? And it's like, yeah, I could do that, but I could also just make a bunch of food and put it on a plate and then it would be heavy for you, right? So um, so what we really try and look at is like, what are the unique aspects? What are unique things that you could do within these virtual environments that you can't do in real life or can't do easily and that you couldn't do on a computer as well, right? So um, because that's the other solution is just move it onto a screen. Like why do the immersive portion of it if you could just do it on a screen, right? So there's, you know, a lot of people just want to move their questionnaires into the into an immersive space. <laughs> like there's no point in that. Just you can just do that on a computer screen, right? Um, but that's actually one of the things that we think is most important because my again my lab studies visual cues right and so uh these cues that lead you to to eat and so we think the visual component is a is a big part of that right um and so uh if if you're going to make for example we we have this buffet environment so if we were going to make that buffet environment, we would literally have to build a buffet or or rent a buffet. Um, and then on top of that, we would have to make all of that food. Right. And so that becomes a very costly endeavor. But observing people's uh, behaviors in a buffet is is important. Right. Because that's a more realistic scenario that you would find in, in the real world. Right. A lot of times you bring people into the lab and you just give them a standard meal, call it a standard lab meal. Um, or you might have some small amount of competing food products. Right. Well, in our buffet, we can have 30 competing foods or more. We could put as many as we want in there. Right. And so uh, that that's how things are in the real world. You often have many, many competing foods that you're looking at and trying to decide how much you're going to to get. Right. And so, uh, so the buffet is a really good example of the utility of like a, an immersive virtual environment. We can give a more realistic food selection scenario that is not necessarily easy to, to do in real life. Um, it's, it's also not easy to carry out in a computer, like on a computer screen, right? So you could imagine like you could have your little Fortnite game that is kind of like that. Um, but you lose out a lot of the behavioral components, right? So um, for example, we think that it might be important how you walk around the buffet to start out, right? So what are you looking at? Where, where do you go first? What foods do you approach first? Um, 
How long do you sit there and look at them? Um, those types of things, right? And so when you just have it on a computer screen, it's really it it's hard to to get that. And, and you can more or less. So some people will do that. They'll put competing foods up on a computer screen and watch people's eyes and tra- do eye tracking experiments, those types of things. But it's pretty difficult. Whereas like in virtual reality, we automatically get all that. We're automatically eye tracking everything in VR because it tracks your eyes. Um, we automatically get all of your behavioral movements because it's tracking the headset, it's tracking the controllers, it's tracking um, pretty much everything that you're doing behavioral <laughs> in the environment automatically. So we don't have to do things like um, like video record people and then double um, uh, like doubly view those videos to mark out different behavioral markers. We kind of just get this all automatically. It's all recorded for us instantaneously. Um, so, so yeah, so, so you can see there's quite a few benefits from, from the research side, right? We get to put people in these more realistic scenarios. We think the visual components important, the size of the food, the way that it looks, the way that you're interacting with the plates and the food itself. Right. Um, and then, from the analytics side, we get all of this data collected for us automatically and kind of summarized automatically for us on the back end. Um, and so, so yeah, those are the types of things that we're looking at is what, what are the benefits of using this technology rather than just like, well, let's just replicate everything in, in 3D, in a 3D world, right? And have you come across any limitations in using VR for your research? Well, <laughs> so the um, it it, it kind of depends on the question, right? So that's what I always like when people uh, come and talk to me about using our virtual reality um, scenarios. We talk a little bit about that, like, well, what's the question? Because, for example, um, for the buffet, uh, you can't you can't eat any of that food, right? And so if your question is about how much people are going to eat, then that's probably not the best scenario, the best, um, you know, program for you to be using. Um, but we, uh, but we do, we do have programs that allow you to eat while you're in the, the virtual world. So uh, we, they're called mixed, we call them mixed reality um, programs and they, they can cut out to the real world where you can see uh like food on a table, for example, like actual food in the lab on the table while you're immersed in a 3D restaurant, right? And so again, for us, that's important because we're looking at visual cues. So if we change the world around you, if we change the way the restaurant looks, those types of things, will that impact your eating? But if you're more worried about like, well, if I change the components of the meal to different things or different amounts, then, you know, like VR is not going to be the solution for you because you just need to make different food or adjust the portions um, that you're providing the participant, right? And so, yeah, so it really comes down to the question on what the limitation is. But it, theoretically, I don't think there are really limitations um, because you can essentially make or record anything that you want in those types of environments. Yeah, so it sounds like just being smart about what are you what are you trying to test or study and then is this the most appropriate method if not there's other methods still available yeah exactly and that's one of the things that like 
Uh, I've used a lot of different methods over time. So a lot of my initial research uh, during my graduate school training was using like MRI, for example. And we get the same thing where like, yeah, you could do an MRI paradigm for almost anything, but why? Like it's a tool, right? That tool can answer um, very specific questions if those questions are laid out the right way, right? And so it's the same thing with this. It's just a tool that you could have in your toolbox that that can help you to answer certain questions. And so, yeah, so not everything that we do in my lab is appropriate for VR, right? And so that's why sometimes we don't use it. <laughs> like when we're looking at some of, uh, for example, our digital food marketing stuff, we can do that all just digitally, right? Like we can just make a website that looks like a, um, a social media website. We can make videos, you know, like those types of things. That, so that content, what we're examining in that experiment fits the digital world just using a laptop or a cell phone, right? Um, so there's no need for VR in, in that case. Well, I want to take advantage of our time together and just kind of brainstorm because I do think this is just <laughs> so interesting. Um, so beyond research, how can bedside clinicians leverage VR? And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of run through some scenarios. and I want to get your thoughts. Yeah. So like feeding tube simulation labs, right? Like placing feeding tubes mm-hmm. at the bedside is an advanced practice skill for dietitians. Could we use VR in training and maintaining that competency? What do you think? Yeah. No, I think that's actually a really, like you mentioned that in an email when we were corresponding, right? And I I had never thought of that because I'm not a dietitian by training myself. Um, and but that is like a perfect example. So we actually have a, a research team here at Penn State that they are working with surgeons and they're uh, using VR to essentially replicate surgical situations um, because it's a very advanced skill. It takes a lot of time and there's not many opportunities to practice. Right. And um Apparently, that's like a like a well-known thing in 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 the surgical world is you definitely want a a a, a surgeon that's been practicing for a long time if they're going to be your surgeon, right? Because there's just so many things that could happen, and 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 it's just a tricky kind of hands-on skill, right? So I think that that a hundred percent is something that VR could help with because it's a very unique situation that is hard to replicate. Um, that that takes a lot of practice now it wouldn't ever fully replace the hands-on experience that that you need to get right um but you can imagine that it preps you um and kind of guides you and and gives you some kind of um basis for being able to do that um and so that's actually a, a really great application that we're seeing across a lot of fields not just like in surgery but also there's a lot of that going on in just like mechanical fields as well, like with welding and, and different things like that, where they're helping people to to develop a base um, skill um, before they move into this more like uh, difficult practice simulation or sit scenario or, or actually having to deal with a patient, right? Yeah, and I think back, we several years ago, I was involved in a clinical simulation lab development where we had a mannequin And we, you know, you place the tube and you could manipulate it to create different scenarios. So I'm just thinking, how cool would it be if you were in a virtual reality environment, still using that same mannequin, but in that virtual reality, Mm -hmm. you can change what the monitors say or different things that happen with the patient or in the room. Yeah. I mean, it would just so much, it would better prepare you for when you're in a real patient's room and things happen. 
right? That you need to yeah. manage. Exactly. And so you could imagine that you could have that, um, the app, like in a virtual world, we call it an avatar, right? And so that avatar, you could change um, that avatar situation, you could change their anatomy slightly, you could change, you know, their body size, you could, you know, all of these, these different things. And on top of that, another benefit of VR compared to doing like a mannequin lab, right, is like in the mannequin lab, you, you, you're, like I said, I haven't done this before, but I can imagine that you're inserting the feeding tuber or or whatever, and um, you might be hitting something on the mannequin or pushing a certain way or, you know, like different things like this um, that you might not be able to do on a patient or where the patient would give you feedback like, hey, that's hurting me or or you're this is uncomfortable or different things like that. Right. And so you can actually program that avatar to respond in a similar way. So like if you're inserting it at the wrong angle or with too much pressure or too quickly or, you know, like whatever, all of that can be programmed in the VR world um, to provide that appropriate feedback immediately through the avatar. So it's as if you were func uh, doing the procedure with a patient. Right. Um, and so that's even like a step above a mannequin or, or something like that. How about a scenario where you have a, just a simulated patient encounter? So not placing a tube, mm -hmm. but where you're actually talking with the patient, you're educating them on something that's about to happen. I mean, have you seen that kind of yeah. application in VR? Yeah, so they're not necessarily in dietetics, but this is a, a more common thing that's done. So I think it's uh, Susan Persky at NIH um, has done a bit in this realm and, and obviously others. She's just the one that I know off the top of my head. Um, but where they've had um, medical students interact with patients and they'll alter um, their race, ethnicity, body size, um, all sorts sorts of different things like that to see how the clinician interacts with the patient, right? And seeing if changing certain factors about the patient alters how that the the care is given um, to the patient, right? And um, so yeah, so we've <laughs> we've thought of the same thing of like that's a that would be a really great case, uh, use case scenario for dietitians, right? And seeing like. How are you interacting with different patients depending on um, those types of things, right? Do you have biases towards heavier or lighter patients, for example, or or different things like that, right? And so, so yeah, so that's that's a really also a really good use case scenario for that because again, so VR provides you that way of quickly altering patients' uh, visual appearance, right? Um, while also being able to hold steady everything else, right? Because if you have like a script recorded, um, th that avatar is going to say the exact same thing every time. It's going to say it in the same voice with the same intonation, right? And so then you know that there's not any of these like extra factors that are going into um, what's altering how the clinician or the dietitian in this case is interacting with the patient, right? Um, for us, the way that we approached it uh, because we, we essentially sat down and when we were developing our digital dietitian and we said like, what do we think is going to be the most impactful thing? And the, the, uh, thing that we came up with, um, now see, I'm not a dietitian, but my, my postdoc at the time was, and I, I have several grad students that are dietitians as well. So we, so we talk about this stuff a lot. And one of the things was, is we were like talking about what could a digital experience give 
um, or help a dietitian with. And so rather than from the training perspective, we looked at it from like the clinical side of like, how could we offload the burden of the educational material? And then at the same time, how could we provide the dietitian with some sort of like output that would summarize what their client is doing well with or or not doing well well at right um purely from like a a, a didactic or or a learning perspective right um because for example like like although i'm not a dietitian i have worked in weight loss clinics or things like that and a lot of times you meet with patients and you go over the same material with them every single time right um and we know that if you uh just put on videos or powerpoint presentations people will just tune out a lot of the time anyways right and so um in the case of our digital dietitian it's an interactive so they have to be doing the activities they have to be engaging with the program um and they're given different tasks and we can monitor how well they're doing at different tasks we can monitor how well they do with certain types of foods um you know and so the idea is that like as people progress through this program and they're interacting with it, then the dietitian on the back end could be getting a report, right? And so it could say that, yeah, your patient went through these mo these learning modules about, in our case, we it, it's portion size and energy density, right? And they did really well. They're, they're able to accurately uh, portion out low energy foods, but they really struggled with certain high energy foods, right? And so that might give you something as a dietitian that's more targeted to start talking to your patient about immediately, rather than having to go through layers and layers of um, like interviewing, right? And so you can jump right into those things that that uh, dietitians are really best at, right? Like some of that cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, those types of techniques where you're sitting down and saying like, hey, okay, so we noticed that you have problems with this. Is this, do you see this in, in your real life? And like, how can we, how can we reframe this for you? How can we set goals to help you with this? How can we kind of contextualize um, this in, in your life, right? That, uh, that a digital program will not be so good at, right? So does that kind of make sense? The, the idea is to offload the educational component, provide um, feedback to the, the dietitian so they can dive right into what they're best at. That's awesome. Well, and, and in in working with your digital dietitian concept or in other venues, have you found any data to support that there really are improved clinical outcomes when using the VR? Yeah, uh, well, that's what we're <laughs> we're working through some data on that right now. Yeah, and so that's where that um, we would love to do like a larger grant. So if anybody out there has grant money, we would love to talk to you about. <laughs> um, no, but uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of the thing is we we've gone through the initial development and and um, done some testing and what our initial so the the first time that we initially tested out our digital dietitian for example was during COVID and so what we ended up doing was essentially doing um, our interactive version versus a PowerPoint but it was still in our digital environment. And what we found was that we saw similar outcomes to our interactive program compared to the the, the typical PowerPoint that a, a, a dietitian would give you. So our avatar, instead of doing all the activities, was sitting in the dietitian's office. The avatar had a, a, a computer screen. They were pointing at it and 
talking through the exact same material that was going on in the the interactive version right um so we saw similar improvements in the the what what, what we call the portion size self-efficacy so how confident people felt around being able to estimate portion sizes right and um so uh a lot of people look at that and they go okay so what and we go well actually that's a really good thing because we're showing that our our program has a similar outcome to what a uh, human delivery would be right and um we also found that uh participants tended to like uh doing the interactive program more than just watching the powerpoint which isn't like super surprising right no one likes to sit through a 10-minute powerpoint presentation um and uh so so that was good and then what we were able to do once COVID was over is we we've recently just tested it against actual um in-person delivery so we have like uh, an in-person script that would normally be read by a dietitian to a patient um and we showed uh pretty much the exact same thing that our program is is as effective at conveying the information um but it's more um interactive it's more liked it's more um accessible essentially right and then we we've done an updated version of our program that is faster and and more engaging and shown that we haven't reduced the effectiveness of the program right and um so again some sometimes people want to look at it and they go well if it's not better than but again going back to like what was our intent our intent wasn't to be better than a dietitian in essence right because if we have good high quality education material that's not necessarily our point the point of what we're trying to do is keep people engaged um and and do as well as if if a dietitian were to deliver the information and um and so that that's essentially what we're seeing now one of the questions 